Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. I hope you are doing well. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and you can open your Bible to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 9, and we are studying uh, verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we'll be in chapter 9 this morning. Um, how many of you enjoy spring cleaning? Show of hands. All right, I knew there were some of you out there. Um, some of you don't enjoy spring cleaning. It gives you hives. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon, but usually when you go to clean something really well, you end up making a bigger mess before you clean. Has anybody seen this take place? Sometimes organization is the same kind of phenomenon. You go to organize something, a lot of times you end up having to disorganize things before it can become organized. And I wonder if there's some correlation between those dynamics in the Christian life. You know, there's a, there's a way in which when Jesus gets a hold of us and he radically transforms our heart, that there's a, there's a deconstruction of sorts. You might call it maybe a disorganization. There's a rattling of many things that used to be us so that God can put us back together in a, a shape or a form and that new creation that he is making so that we might please him more. And in the book of Acts in chapter 9, I would submit in this chapter, we kind of see this take place in Saul of Tarsus, who becomes to be known the Apostle Paul, is that God is going to very quickly, after his conversion, uh, begin to scramble up what he knows about his own notions of self-confidence so that he can rely completely upon God. And if you're with us for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, we did something a little bit abnormal because what we did is we took a look at Saul of Tarsus before he knew Jesus, and we kind of jumped over a section in Acts that dealt with Philip's ministry and looked at the conversion story of Saul, how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, how God transformed him in a moment, brought him to his knees, blinded him, and uh, brought Ananias to him to pray for him. And and we looked at how the risen Jesus can change anyone. And Saul of Tarsus is one of the gleaming examples in Scripture of that truth, that the risen Christ can save and can change any person, period. But when he does, there's a way in which we have to, we have to learn. Like we're a new creation, we have to learn things anew. We have to be stripped of notions of self-confidence and self-reliance that aren't grounded in truth and in Christ and that's some of what we see in this picture with, with Saul as God puts him on a path to maximize his fruitfulness in ministry as he often does. He takes him through a difficult journey. But initially, why don't you go with me in verse 20. We'll start there. Uh, this Actually, it's kind of the second half of verse 19. You might even see a break in your Bibles there. But second half of verse 19, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. That's Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so what we saw earlier in chapter 9 in the conversion story, the road to Damascus, is, is Saul is taken to his knees, quite literally, falls on the ground, he's blinded, and we, we kind of took note of the fact that when Jesus gets a hold of you, he causes the fallen to raise to their feet. Because what does he tell Saul? He's like, 
go. Like you have work to do. And he brings Ananias to him and sets him on a path for ministry. And so we see now the change is immediate. Because what does he do? Immediately he starts preaching Jesus in the synagogues. This is such a brief moment. I don't think we really feel the magnitude of it unless we just kind of sit here for a second. Because this is profound what's happened. So Saul's training as a man of the law would have given the ability, based on the custom of the day, to walk into a synagogue and pick up the scriptures as a Jewish man, trained in the law. So if you can picture the newly converted Saul of Tarsus, who is well known for having come into the city to persecute, to chain up, to even kill Christians, he now walks into the synagogue, picks up the Old Testament, and what does he do? Is he preaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is unbelievable. Would have been unbelievable for those who were, who were witnessing it take place. In fact, it was. It says that they were amazed. They were ecstatic. They had no explanation for the change that had happened in this man's life. And in fact, the persecutor has become the preacher. In Galatians chapter 1, one of many places where Saul becomes Paul, refers back to his former life and his conversion. He says this in Galatians 1, 23 and 24. As he talks about how the churches had heard of his story, he says they speak of this, that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The risen Jesus can change anyone. Notably, and they glorify God because of me, because of the works seen in my life these people glorified, they worshiped, they praised God because this man had been changed. So from persecuting Jesus to preaching Jesus, and people were ecstatic. You know, back in the day, we used to get newspapers. You've seen it in movies, right? If you didn't ever get a newspaper, you can kind of loosely know what I'm talking about. But there used to be this whole extra, extra read all about it. There'd be a headline. Something big was happening. It's a little bit like that. Can you believe it? Saul, the persecutor of the church, is now a Christian. The one who used to ravage the church now is preaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Who would imagine that this would take place? It's a profound moment of the power of God changing this man. The terrorist is now an evangelist. The one who made havoc in Jerusalem is now making noise in our town about Jesus. And that's what Jesus does. He sets the fallen on their feet. He turns terrorists into evangelists. He makes the persecutor in one chapter the preacher of the next. That's what the gospel does. It radically transforms men and women and children. It always will, by God's grace. And Saul was a baby Christian. He had met the, the risen Jesus and he was changed and immediately began to tell others about Jesus. The simple but profound message that Saul preach is that Jesus is the son of God. He's the, he's the answer. He's the rescuer. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's sitting in a Jewish crowd preaching that everything we've looked at in the past for these thousands of years is fulfilled in Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. He preaches boldly. He has immediate impact. And this is a, a sweet expression for us, like even for baby Christians. If you've met the risen Jesus, you've been transformed by the gospel that even a baby Christian has a ministry to do, right? Like even baby Christians are called to and are able to and should serve God and tell others about Jesus. And that was, that's what we see Saul doing. He was a formidable foe for the Jews because he was trained well in the law. And he talks about his resume as a, 
as a Jewish man trained in the law in multiple places, but in that same section in Galatians 1, I'll read this section, it kind of develops a picture. It says in Galatians 1, 13 through 19, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So he was like first in his pharisaical class, right? his religious class, top notch. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, what a wonderful statement of the work of God in this man's life. When he was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. God revealed the Son of God to Saul, and he was never the same. And then he goes on to say this. He said, at that moment, after I came to faith, after my conversion, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. So what's the relevance of this? This is kind of a unique connection because in the story in Acts chapter 9, you don't really see this three-year period. Because what Saul is saying, what Paul is saying, is that after his conversion, he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. There was a three-year period where he, he went into the wilderness of Arabia. It was kind of a wilderness wandering. It's a very silent, kind of peculiar three years. We don't know really anything about it. We can kind of infer things. But I think one thing that's notable in the, in the midst of what I think this text is, is teaching us and the way it applies to our lives is that, that God will use preparatory ground to get us ready for future ministry. And a lot of times what that preparatory ground will look like is wilderness-type experiences and suffering to prepare us for a lifetime of ministry. Why? Because Saul had every reason to trust in himself. You heard it in his own words. Uh, he, was, he was zealous and violent in his persecution of the church. He was trained and advanced beyond people of his own age, extremely zealous for traditions. Like he had a resume, right? But God drove him into the wilderness before he did public ministry. There was this initial kind of evangelism, but then for three years he went into the wilderness. God had a whole lot in store for this new convert. His initial evangelistic zeal was clear, but, but he needed to go be with God to learn what it meant to rely upon him. And if it sounds familiar, it should. There's a couple notable people in the Bible who also had wilderness experiences before their public ministry. Moses did, right? Went into the wilderness. He fled Egypt, went into the wilderness for 40 years. God is calling from God, went back to Egypt to become the deliverer for the people of God. Jesus, notably, went into the wilderness for 40 days, was tempted by Satan, and after that started his public ministry. And I would submit that for Saul, the reason he didn't consult or confer or communicate with people first is because God wanted him to learn what it looked like to rely on him. There's something really important for us here. Like if you're, if you're a Christian in this room, like you've understood the gospel, Jesus has gotten a hold of your heart, there's something within you. It might even be just a glow of an ember. For some of you, it burns hotter than others. There's a desire to want to make something of your life for God. There's a desire to want to please him and to make a splash for the kingdom of God while he gives you breath. There's something in you by the spirit of God that gives you that urge. 
And what I think we see, at least in part, in Saul's testimony is that for those who want to be used by God, we have to learn to rely on God first. We need to be pushed into the wilderness to learn what it looks like before we just have some platform for ministry to learn to rely upon the power of God. And I would submit that's part of what happened when Saul went into the wilderness of Arabia for some three years. And learning to rely on God is tough. It takes patience. A lot of you have been walking with the Lord long enough. You know what it looks like to wait on God and try to rely on him. We don't like that. We want stuff now. We want it our way. You hear the fast food commercials. Have it your way. Have it now. Have it fast. Whatever you want. All the time. So we don't like to wait. I hate waiting for coffee to brew. I love my coffee. I wish it took like two seconds. That's the delight of Keurig, right? It kicks out a little bit faster, but I just don't like to wait. Neither do you. We don't like to wait for things, but in a biblical frame of reference or framework, what to us as human beings is difficult and maybe just feels like drudgery. Psalm 27 actually depicts his courage. It takes courage to wait upon God, to rely upon him at the end of this psalm. The psalmist says, wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait on the Lord. So we need to be taken to places that feel like wilderness for us, where really it's just us and God, quite literally, where everything seems to swirl around us and we can't find stability in anything but him. So we learn what it means to to depend upon him. The wilderness or the desert shows us how desperately we need the water, if you want to state it that way. And I have to wonder how this time shaped Saul for his ministry. If you think of him just in the wilderness, alone with God, a man who's qualified in many ways, right? Had a whole lot to point to in his pedigree, his personality, his training. And you wonder if some of this time in Arabia, this wilderness, was what fueled what he said in Philippians chapter 3. Because what Paul says in Philippians chapter three is essentially this. Like, I've got all of the background. Like, I'm from the right tribe. I got the right training. I got the strong amount of zeal. Everything that I could credit to my account, I have. But then he says this. Whatever things I would consider as gain to me, to my account, I consider them as loss because of Christ. And he goes on to say, More than that, I view everything to be lost in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I might go on to know him and his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. But Paul says, anything that I might consider to my gain as a human being, I count it as loss because the cross strips me of any notions of self-confidence before God or any notions of being able to sustain by my own power or strength, or personality, my ministry, it's all from and through and in Christ. And it's the same for you. It's the same for me. The only hope we have to be faithful in this life is the grace of God. And it starts there, it's in there in the middle, and it finishes there as well. Saul's time in the wilderness wasn't the only thing that God used to prepare him for a lifetime of ministry. Because you see in verse 23, It says, when many days had passed, which could be an allusion to that three-year period, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
So this former persecutor, this wonderful irony, the persecutor is now the persecuted. Right? The hunter has become the hunted. If you can just depict this scene, like you're in Damascus, you're Saul, day and night, people are lying in wait to take your life because you're preaching Jesus. <clears throat> they don't want you in that position. They don't want you to have that platform. So the persecution comes and it comes strong. It comes in multiple waves in this section. And this preparatory suffering would continue to define Paul's ministry. And you see this initially when God talks to Ananias, the man who prayed over Saul that he regained his sight. Because he initially tells Ananias, I want you to go to this guy named Saul. He's in this place and I want you to pray for him. Ananias' response is, I know that guy. He's done a lot of really bad things to your people. I don't want to go there. And God's response is essentially this, go, because he's my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say this, I will show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. It was the calling card of Paul's, Saul's ministry from the beginning. It was kind of the syllabus of his Christian education. It involved a lot of hours of difficulty. And he saw it so connected to the ministry that his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, multiple places, he says this. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, share in suffering according to the power of God. There's this peculiar power that, that a Christian possesses in the midst of suffering that can only be attributed to the power and the presence of God, not any sort of self-confidence or ability or personality that we possess to kind of sustain ourselves. Suffering strips us of illusions of self-sufficiency and forces us to cling to the power of God like few other things do. And some of what Paul did in, later on in his letters to 2 Corinthians, the church in Corinth that Paul had a hand in starting in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a resume of his sufferings. And notably what he's doing in this book is he's writing a letter to the church because there's other kind of super apostles who are trying to disqualify his ministry. He's essentially going to say this. He's like, hey, my ministry is legitimate. And some of the biggest reasons you know how is because I've suffered so greatly for the cause of Christ. So I want to read this section. And when we get to the end, you'll see how it connects to our story. So he says essentially this. Compared to these super apostles... I have had far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. And here's a connection to our story. 
It says that Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. It's interesting, like this litany of things that he suffered, like beaten with rods in prison, like shipwrecked, like nobody has that kind of resume of suffering for the gospel. So why would he include the basket incident? It seems to me that Paul learned in this initial moment of persecution how helpless he was apart from God and the people of God. He had to rely on God and he had to rely on the people of God. If you can just imagine it, like he came into Damascus with an entourage. He was well known. He had authority to pull Christians out of their homes, put them in prison, even kill them. And he came there with that express purpose. And now what's he doing? He's got to crawl into a basket just to save his life. Not only that, he's got to have people lower him through the city wall down to safety so he can secretly escape being killed. Like what a humbling path the Lord put him on initially in his ministry. Why? So that he would learn to boast in weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right after what we just talked about is a famous section most of you have probably heard. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And he says, all the more then I'll go about boasting in my weakness. Why? For when I'm weak, I'm strong, right? And for the Christian, God often takes us to places of wilderness and suffering so that we learn to trust in him and we prove to be kind of this earthenware, like this 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about. He defines us, not just him. We're like little clay pots, fragile, broken clay pots that carry around treasure. Why? Like why that picture? He goes on to say real simply, so that the surpassing power would be seen as coming from God. You and I, just simple, pieced together even, clay pots that are broken, now we're pieced together to hold the treasure of the gospel, going around, sprinkling around the earth, right? Why? So the power of God would be seen in our weakness. We're just a clay pot filled with endless treasure that the world might see that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Not to us, but to God be the glory. Saul came into the city with an entourage. He was a source of intimidation for Christians and the object of envy and admiration for the Jewish leaders. And now he finds himself in a basket. Verse 26, you can look there with me and go back to the text. It says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, so after this season of three years, as he mentioned in Galatians, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, understandably so, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and de declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preached boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. There's a second wave of persecution. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So he learned to rely on God. Hear me on this. Like, as believers, like, we have to rely on God, and we must rely on other believers. You see it early on in Saul's life. They let him down in a basket. Even Barnabas, who becomes a son of encouragement, who 
journeys with Paul and his future journeys, is the one who stands by him to advocate for his conversion. Hey, this guy's for real. I've seen him preaching. The Lord showed up to him on the road. He's got a similar testimony to us. Jesus commissioned him to go. Barnabas stands by his side. He relies on, Saul does, the testimony of his brother. And you think of the picture, like Saul walked in some three years earlier into Damascus, an independent, able, Jewish leader, dead set on persecuting Christians, and he walks out on this similar road, maybe the same road, as a persecuted Christian, chased for his life. But the risen Jesus can change anyone. And this section ends with what I debated could be a, well, it can be, it could be multiple sermons. In verse 31, read that with me. Here's this kind of culmination of the work that God is doing in the church. So, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And listen to this part. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this new Jesus group, right? These people of the way, the church, have been pushed out of Jerusalem by way of persecution. The gospel is going forward. People are being converted, coming to know Jesus. And the church is now, even in the midst of persecution, being built up and experiencing peace. And there's something of this recipe for church multiplication and fruitfulness that's given in this text. But here's one thing I'd say. This, this, this verse, this one verse, is a combination of a fulfillment of God's promise and a recipe for fruitfulness in ministry, individually and corporately. The fulfillment of God's promise is found because you know, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. I'm with you, I'm gonna be with you to the end of the age. And Acts 1.8, he says, you're gonna be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And so we see this as a fulfillment, like this ongoing, progressive fulfillment of what Jesus said was gonna happen. Let me put that graphic up there real quick, just that I will build my church. I pulled this off of H.B. Uh, Charles' Twitter account. H.B. Charles, the pastor, and you should listen to him if you haven't. He's a wonderful man of God who loves the Lord. And he put this on there. This is just one statement accentuated kind of in multiple ways through these different words. And it comes from Matthew 16, 18, where Peter says, Jesus asks, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then the famous statement, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. There's things, there's so much we see in this. is one simple statement that Jesus is doing the building. Like, he's the one. It's his church. He's going to build it. He will build his church. It's not dependent on one person or personality or strategy. Jesus is going to build his church. It's his, and he's committed to seeing it multiply and the kingdom expand. But he doesn't even just say, I'll protect my church. I'll preserve my church. That'll be good news as well. And he will do that. He says, no, I'm going to build it from the far reaches of the globe. There will be more and more people until, until I'm done who come to know what I have done. 
I'm going to build my church, and hell itself can't prevail against it. That's good news. It's good news for us trying to be faithful as many years as the Lord gives us. That God is going to, he's going to do a work. And notably, what, what we see here is this combination of the sovereignty of God. I'm going to build my church. Yes, it's from God. But what does he use to build his church? He uses the church to build his church. He uses the people of God to multiply more people of God. How? This peculiar, redeemed people of God walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the church multiplied. More and more people were added to their number of those who were being saved. If I could just be honest for a minute, like a lot of ministry, we spend trying to be faithful to plan and have vision for the future. And we're trying to build ministries in response to the different burdens and gifts of the people that God has entrusted to us. And here in this section, verse 31, the promise that God is gonna build his church, like it's not really extravagant, but there's a sweet recipe for church growth and multiplication. And it has everything to do with you and I and how we carry ourselves in this world. Are we walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? So I want to take a minute as I close off just to speak to those things just for a minute as I kind of shepherd us as we go into taking the Lord's Supper together. One of the things is the picture is that we're walking. Like we're not just sitting, like listening to sermons. Like on your way as you go this week, the onus is on you as an individual believer filled with the Spirit of God to walk, to go on your way, fearing God and being comforted by His Spirit who's always with you. That's the word. So walking in is the same word that's used in the Great Commission, go. It says that they were going on, fearing the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole set of sermons we could do on what does the fear of the Lord mean? And I want to give you just a brief picture of some of what it means. This isn't exhaustive. And it's this. In the fear of the Lord, it means to, to see and submit to God. Let me tell you what I mean. The examples you see even in the book of Acts is when people feared God, they saw his work. Like seeing his hand and his character, like his, his works and his ways, and in response, submitting in obedience to him. I would submit that's one definition of the fear of the Lord. We see and we submit. We see the hand of God, we see his ways, and we joyfully submit in obedience to him. You see it in Acts chapter 2 that awe or fear came upon every soul as a result of what? They were continually devoting themselves to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship, to communion, and fear came upon their hearts. They did life together, and day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. You see it in Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, this dreadful moment where they lie to God. They try to look like they're being generous when they were holding back, and what happens? Both their lives are taken. Immediately, God takes their life in a moment, in an instant. And what happens? The whole church, everyone who hears of the story, is stricken with the fear of God. You see it in Acts chapter 19, the sons of Sceva, these kind of fraudulent exorcists. They want to try to drive out demons by this Jesus that, that Paul knows. And they come, and this guy's like, I know Paul, and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And so the possessed guy comes upon them, strips them naked, beats them, and the whole area hears about it and what's their response 
Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. What's the relevance for us? Every single one of us is tempted to be dismissive of sin, compromise. Every single one of us. There are moments in our lives where we're tempted to look at something present in our lives and be dismissive of that thing, of that behavior, of that word, of that pattern of life. And the fear of the Lord means we, we see God's work in us. We see the nature of his character being holy and we res- respond in submitted obedience to his word. So maybe a couple questions to ask. This question is from a book called Whole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. He asks a simple question. It's like when you're engaged in different things, maybe things that you're wondering or maybe that you know don't please God, he asks this question, can you thank God for this? It's a good question. Because if you can't, it's a pretty good litmus test that it maybe doesn't please God. You need to turn from it and submit yourself to the things of God. All of us probably at this point in our lives, maybe when we're younger, we think about it like, what? Like, how would I act if Jesus was sitting right next to me? Like, would I speak this way to my kids? Like, would I be this harsh? Would I do X, Y, Z if Jesus was sitting right here? If you're asking that question, the answer is probably no. You straighten up in an instant if Jesus was sitting right next to you. But here's the... Here's the curiosity in that question. is like the spirit of Jesus actually is right next to us. It's within us. The spirit of God is within his people. So I have to believe this is some of what Paul was getting at when he talks in Philippians 2 and he's talking to this church he loves. He's like, hey, it's good for you to obey when I'm present, but now even more when I'm not around, you need to obey. And he says this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is with you. Because it's God who is at work in you. to willing to work for his good pleasure. So take this thing seriously. Don't just wink at sin. See it as sin. See God as holy. See his grace in your life. It's called you to more than just dabbling with the world and submit to his rule and his reign. Follow him with all your heart. I believe that's something in what the fear of the Lord means. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit is this treasure of a consolation for the people of God. As some of you this week, much like us, there's, there's been a difficult week in many ways this, this week. Um, without getting, getting lost in those details, just we've had to deal with some pain this week. But most weeks come with some measure of difficulty, in my experience. There's some degree of challenge that we face. Sometimes it's more severe than others, Right? comes in different packages, but we feel the instability of this world. We feel the, the school of suffering in all of its different forms. You know, there's never going to be anything you go through where you can somehow claim that the Spirit of God is absent. Never. Never in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, like his Spirit is within you as a permanent pledge of your inheritance as a permanent source of help and comfort for you as his child. There are moments where it's just an issue of does the Spirit have all of me? I have all of him, as it were. Does he have all of me? So in those moments where you feel the weight of those difficulties, that as a Christian you receive this unique divine encouragement in the midst of your journey. Is there someone in your life that you can think of even this morning? that's been a constant source of encouragement for you 
maybe like a Barnabas, like a son of encouragement. Like you just know that they're just gonna always give you like the balm of encouragement, even if you don't deserve it. Mr. Bass usually sits in the second pew over here. He's been in this building since 1967 and loves the Lord and almost, well, I wouldn't say almost, every single Sunday he's here, I step down, he's like, I love that sermon. So when the Lord takes him home, somebody's gotta occupy his seat. And he'll embarrass me with how much he encourages me. I know he does it to other people in the body. But what about just the, the whispers of the presence of the Spirit of God, that he is with you? You know, this word for comfort or encouragement, they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 14 and 16 to talk about the helper, the Holy Spirit. So you can put yourself in the seat of the, the disciples. They were sad. Jesus was talking about leaving. You can think of it like, we've been with you. We don't want you to leave. And his response is this, like, it's to your advantage that I go. Well, how could it be? Like, how could it be better that Jesus is gone? Because when he goes, he's going to send the helper, the spirit of God. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to be with you. His spirit will be in you. He'll dwell with you and he'll guide you and he'll lead you into the truth and he's gonna remind you of everything that I've said. That's what it means to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's like Jesus is really with you. He's really with me. I'm not an orphan, I'm a child. He walks through every single twist and turn of the journey, comforting us with his promises and with his presence. And he's sending us now and supporting us along the way. He has and is actively comforting, encouraging, and helping us in the midst of the journey. Maybe just a question to ask to close before we take the Lord's Supper is, are you relying on God? Are you relying on God in your life? Can you think of just areas in your life where you're just walking in self-sufficiency? It will always be true in our lives that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. That will always be the case. As we rely upon him, it's just the this is seat of the reception of grace. You can imagine yourself sitting down and be like, okay, I trust in you, and just actively now I'm receiving the grace of God. But when I don't, when I walk in de independence and try to somehow rely on myself, then the seat I take is a seat of pride where God is actively opposed to me. And I pray that we be a church that relies upon him. And church families, we try to, make the biggest splash for the kingdom as we can in this life, in this city, in this place, in the world, it will not happen unless what we see in verse 31 is present in us. That we go on in our lives in the fear of God, seeing him and submitting to him and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, I believe that what he started here will continue to multiply and increase.